turn with me, please, in your Bibles to uh, Matthew's uh, Gospel, chapter uh, 18, and we're going to read from the 23rd verse. If you're using one of the church Bibles, you should find it in page uh, 985 or uh, thereabouts. Matthew uh, 28, and reading from verse, uh, we'll read from verse 21. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times. Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times, or 70 times 70. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began to, uh, as he began the settlement, a man who owed him ten thousand talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, cancelled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And he grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me, and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in, you wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant? just as I had on you. In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. On the 8th of November 1987, uh, an IRA explosion ripped through the remembrance service of the small town of Enniskillen in Northern Ireland. Uh, Gordon Wilson was pulled alive from the rubble, but his eight-year-old daughter died while holding his hand in the blast. Interviewed just hours later, 
his response was to rock the nation. Instead of hateful, vitriolic, he said of his daughter's killers, I bear them no ill will, I bear them no grudge. And later he went on to say, I have forgiven them and will be praying for them. His response made a significant impact because it crossed the boundary of what was considered to be normal and natural. And that was because it indeed came from another realm. His response came from the realm of grace. Grace that had touched his life. Grace that had mastered him. Truly forgiving others is something many people struggle with. And Peter reveals his own very calculating view of forgiveness in 21 of our, verse 21 of our passage. He asked Jesus, how often should I forgive my brother? Now, the Pharisees would have answered three times. Uh, and Peter knew that. And Peter could trump that, being Peter, and said, seven times? Uh, surely that's a commendable limit. But Jesus' reply... 70 times 7, was not intended to stretch uh, Peter's computing powers. It was another way of saying, you must not place any limit at all on your forgiveness. And Peter's deficient view of forgiveness forms a springboard from which Jesus would develop further instruction on the subject. And so we have the parable before us. But please don't allow your familiarity with this parable to dampen the surprise explosions that it is intended to generate. And I want to suggest to you that there are at least four surprise explosions. And the first is the staggering enormity of the man's debt. The second is the unrealistic optimism of the man's response. And the third is the lavish graciousness of the forgiveness bestowed. And finally, the undeniable evidence of spurned grace. Let's uh, look at these in turn. The, the staggering enormity of the man's debt. At the king's palace, uh, a sudden audit shows that a high-ranking servant was in serious debt, either from maladministration or embezzlement, we're not told. What is key, however, is the size of the outstanding debt. It is a staggering, almost incomprehensible sum. 
Now, uh, talents doesn't mean very much to us today. Uh, But I'm told that the equivalent today would come in the region of 200,000 years of wages. That is a staggering sum. And one wonders, was the servant himself stunned by the enormity of the debt? Had he deceived himself? As year after year, the, the debt mountain grew. Had he perhaps buried his head in the sand, hoping his folly would never be uncovered? How easily people slip into that world of uh, denial. This servant was then faced with a new reality, justice carries with it its own momentum. And so the arrest warrant was signed, the prisoner is arraigned, and a devastating sentence is passed in verse 25. He and his family were to be sold with all his goods to help pay off the debt. Let's just pause here for a moment to recognize that this debt reflects the enormous debt each one of us owes to God. We were, of course, created to give God perfect obedience. But with every hour and day and month and year that passes, our sin and disobedience adds to our personal debt mountain. There are many folks who are in denial and argue, uh, we're really pretty decent people. Indeed, compared with other folks that I know, I'm pretty outstanding, really. But what happens when God loosens the blindfold of self-deception? Grasping the enormity of our debt mountain can be a crushing and a disarming experience. Uh, Perhaps one of the time bomb moments that Sinclair was referring to uh, this morning. A minister friend of mine now in glory described the day when his blindfold was removed and he sought the comfort of a friend over the telephone. But all he could bring himself to say over and over again were these words, Oh, my sins, my Sins, the enormity of the debt mountain had that crushing impact upon him. Now, he would have said it was the kindness of God that removed the blindfold. To see the one that we have offended and the scale of our offense 
should cause us to cast ourselves unreservedly upon the mercy of God. What does Paul say to the Romans? God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. It's the kindness of God that uh, institutes that interim audit on our lives when the blindfold is removed. But how, how does the servant in our parable respond to being confronted with his enormous debt mountain? Do we find here a broken penitent or do we find something else? Well, here I would suggest to you is the second great surprise in the parable. The servant says in verse 26, be patient with me and I will pay back everything. 200,000 years salary worth of debt. Really? And with what? The unrealistic optimism of human nature is totally mind-blowing. Recall how it finds expression in Genesis 11. You will remember after the flood there developed an anti-God movement by those confident in their ability to circumvent the judgment of God. And they say in chapter 11, verse 4, we can build a tower that will reach up to heaven. They believed they could become their own saviors. And be remembered. Be remembered. Get a place in history as those who outmaneuvered God. Now, there's no prizes for guessing where that kind of thinking came from, who injected that thought into their minds. But then there is a beautiful irony as the story unfolds. In the very next verse, we read, they're saying, remember, we're building this tower that is going to reach up to heaven. And in the following verse, we read, uh, the Lord came down to see the city and the tower. See our great tower? And God comes down to see the pimple and the landscape that they had uh, created. Uh, a temporary one at that as God put an end to their building program. Uh, but the roots of that unrealistic optimism remain. This optimistic, I can manage to nullify the judgment of God mentality has persisted throughout history, sometimes in the most religious of settings. Uh, think, for example, of the Pharisee who prayed, I thank you, God, that I am not like other people, cheaters, sinners, adulterers. Uh, I'm certainly not like the tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give you a tenth of my income. He's really saying, consider the magnificence of my performance. This optimistic, I can manage mentality 
actually caused many of the religious elite of Jesus' day to reject both him and his lordship and the salvation that he came to secure. Now, brace yourself for the third explosive surprise in the parable, the lavish graciousness of the forgiveness that is bestowed. Did the crowded throne room think that perhaps they had misheard the king? The whole debt was to be cancelled, verse 27. Notice there is no bankruptcy sale, no restructuring of the debt, no representative from CAP is involved at all. Instead, 200,000 years worth of wages is wiped out in a single stroke. Can you credit that? And we need to take on board that it cost the king. It cost the king to cancel the servant's debt. Just as it has cost God dearly to comprehensively cancel ours. In Scripture, God uses a variety of language to ensure that we don't take his redemptive work or forgiving grace lightly. Isaiah, in chapter 43, writes this, I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt for your ransom redemptive language. I give Egypt for your ransom, Cush and Seba in your stead. Since you are precious and honored in my sight, and because I love you, I will give people in exchange for you, nations in exchange for your life. And then 10 chapters later, that graphic language becomes stunningly personal. Surely he took up our pain and borne our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. Peter couldn't be clearer when he writes, it was not with perishable things such as silver and gold that you were redeemed, but with the precious blood of Christ. Scripture is clear. Forgiveness comes at an incalculable price. Incalculable. Cheap grace views the blessings of God as automatically dispensed at no cost to himself. But grace 
is costly. There is really no such thing, apologies to Bonhoeffer, there is really no such thing as cheap grace. What is free to us was costly to God. Some foolishly think that forgiveness is something that is automatically and routinely dispensed by God. Catherine the Great said, I shall be an autocrat, that's my trade, and the good Lord will forgive me, that's his. Heine, the German uh, poet, died muttering these words. Of course God will forgive me, that's his job. Wrong. God is under absolutely no obligation to forgive. And when costly forgiveness fails to impress itself upon us, as in this servant's case, then the stage is set for what I think is the most bewildering of all of the surprises in this parable. And we see the undeniable evidence of spurned grace. No sooner had this servant stepped out of the king's presence, no sooner was color restored to his ashen face than he meets one of his fellows who owes him the equivalent of four months wages. And how does he react? Verse 28, pay up or else. And you ask, how can a man who has received pardon for a debt so large refuse to cancel a debt so small? I want to suggest to you that his response reveals what we might term undigested grace. Grace, you see, which has been truly digested. Grace that becomes a part of us enlarges the heart. It opens the hand. It excites the mind. It motivates the will. And yes, it diminishes the memory of the harm that others have done us. It will certainly not provoke the violent response that is found in verse 28. Did you notice? He throttled the man within an inch of his life. How can a man How can a man who has experienced merciful compassion exercise such wanton cruelty? Again, I want to suggest that the reaction we have before us reveals an obsession with justice. His ears, notice, were stopped to mercy, even as his fellow's language almost exactly echoes his own. And a go directly to jail card is issued. Like Shakespeare's Shylock, 
I suppose he could argue that justice was on his side. Legally, he was within his rights to have his fellow imprisoned. This obsession with our rights is often used to justify an unforgiving spirit. You know, we feel it necessary to explain why we're not speaking to so-and-so, why there is bitterness in our hearts, the violence of our action. It's, It's justifiable. I was within my rights. But consider this, please, this evening. Those who are most vociferous in demanding their rights seldom consider what would happen if God demanded his rights. What would happen if God demanded his rights? How are we to try and explain the servant's graceless and unforgiving response? Well, first I want to suggest that he has not really grasped, or perhaps better, been grasped by the grace of forgiveness. You see, forgiving grace is a transforming grace. We are not only overwhelmed by God's forgiveness and stand in awe of his mercy, that experience should translate itself into our dealings with others. And if there is no transformation, a person may have learned the truth of forgiveness but he has not experienced the power of forgiveness. It is possible when faced with the enormity of our debt and the demands of God's justice for the truth of God's forgiveness to bring temporary relief. But an adamant refusal to forgive others reveals that we have not truly experienced the power of God's transforming grace within our own hearts. Secondly, I want to suggest that it seems clear that the servant's optimism and self-centered confidence, which earlier found expression in his claim, give me time and I'll pay, has not been quelled. I want us to see it resurfacing as he leaves the king's presence, grasping the receipt of his cancelled debt in his hand. Picture him uh, consumed, as it were, with a spirit of self-congratulation. I think I handled that interview pretty well. Just the right amount of subservient whimpering. Some very convincing tears. I deserve an Oscar for that performance. Well done, you got away with it. You pulled the wool over the king's eyes. I think we have here a man convinced that his freedom was due to his own performance 
and therefore had absolutely nothing at all to do with the mercy of God. I think thirdly, we see behavior that uncovers an unrepentant spirit. He wasn't genuinely sorrowful for having offended the king's majesty or for denying the king what was rightfully his. Rather, his sorrow has been generated by the fact that he was found out and now he was facing the consequences. Help! Remember, Paul says, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. You see, worldly sorrow is self-centered. And it asks, how will this exposure of my sin affect me? How will it affect my reputation, my status, my livelihood? This servant had never been sorry for the fact that he had failed his master. Again, it's all about him. Notice in verse 31, news of the servant's unmerciful behavior is reported back to the king, and for a second time the servant finds himself on the dock, but this time he faces not his master's gracious compassion, but his anger and censure, and his get-out-of-jail-free card is effectively withdrawn. Now, how does Jesus explain the significance of this parable. Look at verse verse 35. This is how my heavenly Father will treat you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. Now, clearly, Jesus does not intend to teach that we can be forgiven and then at some future date have that forgiveness withdrawn. Rather, this parable is designed to expose the sheer incompatibility between possessing an unmerciful and unforgiving attitude towards others while expecting to be able to enjoy the rich and merciful forgiveness of God. You see, The grace of forgiveness is a communicating grace. Those who inhale the forgiveness of God are expected to exhale that lavish forgiveness on others. What did Jesus teach his disciples to pray? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. We're actually saying when we pray that most famous of all prayers, as your forgiven children, we are committed 
to reflecting the character of our Heavenly Father by demonstrating His mercy and abundant, generous, costly forgiveness in our dealings with others. Jesus' teaching did more than answer Peter's question. It surely challenges our behavior today. I wonder if there are folks in our own church fellowship from whom we may have been withholding forgiveness. Our family members from whom we've been withholding forgiveness. Our neighbors, our work colleagues from whom we have been withholding forgiveness. And we have justified doing so at any number of levels. Do we keep a score of the wrongs that others have done us? Are we conscious of of bitterness in our hearts towards those who have done us great harm? We'll never develop spiritual amnesia to those who have offended us. We'll never stop trying to justify the bitterness in our hearts towards those who have wronged us. If the teaching of this parable is not allowed to to soak into the very center of our beings, we'll never lose sight of the molehill offenses of others until we have truly gazed upon the, the debt mountain that is ours, which our heavenly Father, at great cost to himself, says, I will forgive. And we'll never convince the world of the credibility of the gospel if they're unable to see generous, lavish, costly forgiveness in our own lives as we relate to others. When Stephen prayed for those who were stoning him, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Lord, forgive them. Was Saul of Tarsus taken aback by the unnatural behavior of Stephen? Did he recognize Stephen to be a citizen of another realm, a realm of grace? People should be able to point the finger at us when we forgive those who have offended us and say, that behavior's no real. It's not natural. People people don't react like that. And 
the silent response in our hearts is, well, if we are members of the realm of grace, if we have seen the mountain of debt that our heavenly Father has forgiven us, if we have taken note of the cost to God, His only Son's sacrificial death upon the cross, then we do act like that. For we have both breathed in the grace of God in order that in turn in our dealings with others we might exhale that forgiveness. Let's pray.